You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica didn't have a wingman in this episode, and I'm gutted to have missed out. The discussion is packed with plenty of great insights. The first one was paying too much for property and how you're really shooting yourself in the foot from day one. The second point I really loved was why there is differences between city market performances and in particular in Brisbane after the flood. Brisbane will definitely boom. It could be the next capital city to boom, but it won't be until all the experts stop predicting that it will. The third point was around migration and government policy, how this totally transforms the property market year to year. And one big property myth that is challenged in this episode is property yield. One of my biggest concerns with property is people who chase yield, because it's probably one of the biggest mistakes I see investors make. Please stick around for this week's cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of John Linderman. John is the CEO of innovative research firm Property Power Partners and Director of Property Predictions, and he's widely respected as one of Australia's leading property market analysts. With well over 15 years of experience researching the nature and dynamics of the housing market at major data analysts, John is renowned as the property market researcher that property experts go to for all their Australian housing market insights. And here we are. We've gone to you today, John. Now, his extensive property knowledge is complemented by around 40 years' experience as a successful property investor, and I will get back to that in a moment. And for over five years, John wrote a monthly column on housing market research for Australian Property Investor magazine, is the in-depth columnist for your investment property magazine, and a regular contributor to various other property investment publications and podcasts. Now, lastly, before we get stuck into the questions, John has also authored best-selling books for property investors called Mastering the Australian Housing Market and Unlocking the Property Market, both published by Wiley's. And thank you very much for joining the elephant in the room today. It's a pleasure, Veronica. It's great to be here. Now, before we get into the research side of things, and I've got lots of questions for you, I am actually keen to know how you define a successful property investor. Well, a a successful property investor, Veronica, is somebody who achieves the goals they've set out to achieve which could be different for different types of investors. You know, you've got people after cash flow, capital growth, buy and hold, or even manufactured growth like renovation and development. So if you achieve the goals you you wanted to, then you're a success. They're all, in a way, they're slightly short-term goals, those ones, though, aren't they? I mean, the big picture for most people is financial freedom or being a self-funded retiree is normally the goal. Would you agree? I do. And in my um, books, for example, I explain that it's a journey you go through. When, when you start off as a property investor, as I did at the age of 20, I tried to borrow as much as I possibly could. I had very little capital of my own and I invested in areas that would give me the maximum possible capital growth in the shortest period of time. So I was using the bank's money to make my own money. Then over time, uh, as I'm now at the stage where I'm looking at cash flow rather than capital growth, because if I invest in properties that are going to go up in price, I'll probably just be leaving that growth to my kids and grandkids, you know. So <laughs> I just want to be a bit greedy and say, now I'm after cash flow. So initially, it's all about capital growth, mm. and then it changes over time to a position of uh, of getting good positive cash flow. Yeah. And are you still buying properties, or you are getting the cash flow out of that portfolio that you'd built? Well, when I say buying, and we're buying and selling properties because we're finding that areas we've invested in for cash flow that position may change over time. And so we look for other areas that have got good cash flow potential. Interesting. Okay. What, in your opinion, should buyers be looking for when researching an area in which to buy an investment property? Well, again, it depends on your goals. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a very open question. I think if you're after cash flow, you've got to look at good constant rent demand. So you're looking at areas where there's a lot of uh, renters and they're the types of renters that you want. So it could be a construction zone or tourist area, something like that. 
But if you're after long-term buy and hold, you're looking at well-established suburbs that have got good long-term growth potential. So it really does vary on in what types of goals you've got. If you say looking at renovation, well, then you might be looking at areas where there is a lot of established housing and where the types of housing are very different, even within one street. So you've got lots of different types of properties and therefore your chance of buying one and renovating and making a good return on that are enhanced. And that is interesting, isn't it, in itself, because there's so much wishful thinking out there amongst investors and would-be investors, and particularly on the cash flow side of things, because that's, in my view, and tell me whether you agree or not, I I welcome you to to correct me if you think I'm wrong, but cash flow to me seems the riskiest area, would you say? Or what? I mean, I know renovating is very risky, but certainly buying for cash flow can be risky. You just talked about, you know, for instance, where there's a new construction zone and there'll be a lot of people renting in the short term, but what about the long term? What are, I guess what are some of the mistakes that you think buyers would make or some of the pitfalls or traps in terms of the research that's available for them to look at? I think the, the biggest mistake that most investors looking for cash flow fall into is the idea that high yield is always good yield. Uh, you can get very high uh, rent yielding areas and you see rent yield being a component of both the rent and the amount you've paid for the property that means that if prices fall in an area, the yield actually goes up. Mm. So the, when you get those reports that say these are the 100 highest rent yielding areas in Australia, they invariably uh, include areas, you know, which are old uh, mining towns like Moorambar and Dysart and Blackwater and Emerald in Queensland or Queenstown and places like that in Tasmania. So what's happened there is that the rent demand has simply evaporated, prices have fallen because investors have sold so you've got this artificial, what I call bad rental yield. It's actually high, but it's it's not real. Oh, wow, uh, yeah. So what you look for is genuine high yield that's driven by rent demand. And again, it depends on the types of renters. So if you've got um, a good example is one of my predictions, which was hay in southern New South Wales. We found out that a cotton gin was about to be built in hay and they'd need 160 workers to build the gin. So we looked at, well, what is the rental supply in Hay? And there were no properties for rent at all, so we figured that rents were going to go through the roof, which they did, and then investors would start buying because the rent yield was about 13%. And then prices go up. And then prices (laughs) went up, but they doubled in seven months. Now, because we told people about this at the start, they were able to get both positive cash flow and a doubling in price within a year they then would have sold to people who didn't know all this was about to end. As soon as the gin was finished, the workers departed and everything went back to the way it was before. Oh, that's a great case study. So in your advice, do you then also, when your clients or the people taking your advice are buying, you also say to them, this is a short run. You, you do need to be prepared and watch for the signs and get out in time in order to keep those gains? Exactly. And it's very easy to do that. In the case of hay, all you needed to do was look at the number of rental vacancies. And as soon as they started to go up from five to 10 to 20, you knew that the construction was over, even if you hadn't read the local papers that told you that. So you could tell quite easily that it was all going to come to an end. And then the next thing you would see is the number of properties listed for sale also starting to increase as people started to sell out because they couldn't get tenants and the whole thing was about to end. Oh, so what do you think about Tassie now? Well, that was <laughs> interestingly, <laughs> there are some people who claim to have predicted that, uh, you know, Tassie was going to boom, but I actually publicly did that in May 2016. Mm. And I said that Hobart that boom potential. It then did boom. It's been the best performer. Uh, mm. Last year, I said the growth would spread to other cities, especially Launceston, which is the second biggest city. And that's gone up by 26% in the last six months. And then I said more recently, early this year, that there's still a few coastal areas left with a lot of growth potential. But again, it's timing. You wouldn't buy in Hobart now. It's it's all over. Launceston, it's too late. And part of the problem there is that the, the vendors are aware of the growth that's occurred. And so they're, they're savvy. They're saying, hang on, we don't have to, you know, accept a lower price because if you don't like our price, somebody else will. Mm. And so there's no negotiation. You just simply have to buy a property 
and it's probably near the peak now. Mm. Uh, and apart from a few coastal areas like Wynyard and Sorrell and St Helens, they've still got you know growth potential, but it, time is running out for Tassie. And this is, I think, one of the big dangers for buyers out there who are relying on research that gives them the next hotspot, for instance. The same sort of research needs to give them a bit of a time span on that and, and also be pretty clear that you've got to bail, otherwise you've got to wait for the next cycle. So I'm curious, what are the indicators that you noticed when you predicted that Hobart was going to have a boom? The main indicators I looked at was the amount of supply that was available very little housing development in Tasmania as a whole. And in Hobart, there was virtually none. And so I could see that, uh, and we, we go to Tassie, we go to different areas and look at the states of the markets on the ground. And uh, what I saw was that there was very little housing development. Now, you don't need a huge influx of people because the rate of population growth in, in Hobart is about 1.1% per annum. That's enough to lift eventually lift the rate of demand above that of supply. And that's what I could see was happening. And that was coupled with a shortage of rental properties as well. So I thought, well, this is an area that's got a lot of potential. And so the boom that has followed, it's a bit of chicken and the egg, isn't it? <laughs> there was going to be a boom. Do you think that's been exacerbated by the rush of mainland money down there? Virtually all property booms involve investors. There's very few, um, you know, booms that occur purely because of owner-occupiers. So yes, there were a lot of mainland investors moved into Hobart. They saw the opportunity. The danger for them is they probably won't see the fact that the opportunity has largely passed by. Mm. When I received an email newsletter the other day saying Hobart is booming, you know, get in now, and I'm, it's too late. Yeah. You know, there's no point investing in Hobart now because you're buying it at the peak. Mm. And these sorts of booms don't last all that long, like Sydney's boom, maybe three, four years, Melbourne the same, and then it, you know, it all slows down. Mm. Interesting. So you received an email, you know, there's a boom in Tassie, you should be buying here or there. Who's sending those sort of emails? <laughs> well, I can't, I won't mention <laughs> don't, names. Don't mention the but, name, but what typically, what type of organisational person would be sending those sort of emails? Um, a lot of them, are there, uh, some buyer's agents will do that because mm. they're looking, you know, for clients. Yeah. Uh, and they think that the growth is still, you know, got legs. Mm. Uh, also developers, sellers, agents, people like that. Uh, they're the ones I'd be wary of because yeah. they've got vested interests in, in selling properties in a certain area which others don't have. Mm. So careful where you get your advice from, listeners. Now, there are quite a lot of short-term predictors or prediction uh, sources out there in the marketplace. And I've been doing a lot of research recently. I think I've told you about what a little project I've been working on. And I've been really concerned, to be honest, with, with some of them and not so much the actual content of these predictions because it's more the promise that they give and that buying investments and making investment decisions, they're complex, complex decisions. And quite often we take mental shortcuts because we just get overwhelmed. So I guess my question to you is that in which ways can buyers be misled by short-term predictions? One of the most common ways is that, and, and Hobart is probably a good example, is that it didn't really matter what you bought or where you bought, it was going to boom, and that's not necessarily the case. So you've got to be aware of the type of property, and that you know the, the type of property, let's say with a hay example, uh, suited construction workers, so they were, you know large houses, group rentals, that was the sort of thing that uh, they were after. But if you're looking at, say, a retiree area, um, you'd be very silly to buy a three-storey house on the side of a hill in Byron <laughs> Bay and try to sell it to a retiree because they won't want to buy it. Mm. So, And I see people making those sorts of mistakes time and time again. Mm. So if, if retirees form most of the market or are likely to, then what do you do? You buy a single-storey house, easy to access, easy to maintain, easy to secure, you know, in a level area near the centre of town. That's you know, very different to, say, in a mining town where you're buying to an area that might be near the airport and uh, and lots of rooms, you know, for group rentals and what's essential is a big garage out the back for the miners to, you know, play around with. So it's a <laughs> totally different type of property and, mm. and that's the first mistake people make. One example is somebody I know who bought a four-bedroom house with a pool in Mount Isa. 
which was, you know, because it was her dream house. She said, I've always wanted a house like this. And I said, but who's going to rent it? You know, there's miners in, in Mount Isa, not people who want a four-bedroom house with a pool. Oh, with the kids out the back and, you know, exactly. enjoying the pool, yeah. Yeah. So that that's the first thing. And the second thing <laughs> is paying too much for the property, you know, not yep. being able to determine what the right price is. It is interesting what you say about the type of property, and there's a lot of data out there, obviously, that talks about an area, and even if it's a, you know, a micro segment of a suburb, for argument's sake, it's still very much numbers, isn't it? And people sort of drill down, they say, oh, yeah, I've got to know the right street to buy in and all that sort of stuff. And I think, well, actually, what you've got to know is who's going to be buying these properties when you go to sell it, or who's going to be renting it, just as what you're saying there. It's actually human beings that live in these properties. Mm. And if you miss that mark, it doesn't matter what you buy. It could be best area ever. I mean, I've seen people, my office is in Balmain, and I've seen people lose money in the boom in Balmain. And, and people think you can't lose money in Balmain, but you can lose money in mm. Balmain. So what do you think are their indicators for long-term growth? I studied short-term growth for about five years and came up with what I thought was a fairly accurate predictor of short-term growth, and that's proven to be about 90% accurate in terms of the direction forecast, which is pretty good. But long-term growth, it's a really hard nut to crack because there are so many things that can change, like interest rates and employment economy and so on. Mm. Uh, one of the biggest things you don't know is the rate of development in an area, you know, what's likely to happen that could change the nature of an area completely. But the the few indicators that when I've studied the Australian housing market, and I've gone right back to 1901 and looked at the, you know, the overall performance of the market, which areas have performed better than others, and it's capital cities for mm. starters. So always buying, if you're buying for long-term growth, you need to buy in a capital city. Yep. And which parts of that capital city, it's always the well-established areas that go up percentage-wise more than the others. And then within those, if you want to narrow it down further, it's areas that have some unique benefit. Like, say, if you're looking at Sydney, it would be properties with a harbour view because there's only a limited number of those. Mm. And as Sydney grows in size, the percentage of houses with a view of the harbour diminishes as a percentage of the total. So they're the sorts of things, you know, you look for. That it comes with scarcity. Scarcity yeah. factor, yeah. Yeah. Now, you say capital cities, are all capital cities equal? No, they're not. You wouldn't go looking for a view in, say, Melbourne because it's very flat. The muddy river. <laughs> <laughs> and in Sydney, about one in ten houses has a view either of the harbour or water or, or mountains, something like that. If you look at Hobart, almost every house has mm. either a mountain or a water view. But in Melbourne not many do. And so it's not really valued. It's because it's so hard to obtain. And the few houses that along the water, along the bayside, don't really have a view anyway, because it's it's very flat. Mm. So it's not an, an area of difference. Um, in Melbourne, it's more about the location, areas like Middle Park, which are close to the city, yep. and the golf courses and so on, they, they have that scarcity factor. But it's mm. not, not about views, it's about different benefits. Yeah. But then you get a situation, say, in Brisbane. You know, Brisbane's had a bit of a checkered history, hasn't it, in terms of investor activity and investor returns. Oh, look, I know people that have owned family home in Brisbane, for instance, and then they've moved to Sydney and they've delayed selling it. And really in that five years that they delayed selling it, it did nothing for them. And they've had to make difficult decisions and also recognise that they've lost opportunity in that time. So why would Brizzy behave differently, say, to Sydney or Melbourne? Well, every capital city is different. I can say that Brisbane is more different than the others. And right. the reason for that is very simple. Uh, there was a massive flood in January 2011, which inundated all of the most sought after areas of Brisbane, which were the riverside suburbs. Mm. And that really set the whole market back, you know, quite, quite a few years. And even though those suburbs have been catching up price-wise, and these are all the ones along the river, they still haven't really caught up back to where they would have been if that flooding had never occurred. And the thing about floods is, of course, they're tragic because of loss of life and property. In this case, it was even more tragic because it was totally unexpected. Mm. And it takes a long time for people to get over those sorts of um, disasters. I don't think Brisbane is there yet. Uh, and I think it, 
uh, when you look at all the expert predictions, you know, 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, different experts were all predicting that Brisbane, it was like they were willing it to boom, you know, hoping mm. it would boom. But I could see that those conditions weren't there yet uh, and they will be there. Brisbane will definitely boom. It could be the next capital city to boom, but it won't be until all the experts stop predicting that it will. And then you'll suddenly see it boom. You heard that first from me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's the, I don't know even how to describe that. That's the expert's expert opinion. I remember filming in Brisbane not long after the, the floods. It, it was amazing how the city could look so quickly like nothing had happened in many respects, yet it was an absolute topic of conversation everywhere. So what you say about, you know, we've all got long memories and, and I think that would have been quite traumatic. But does it just basically mean people hunker down and do nothing? Because is that really what's been the problem? Because it, it's still people living there and they're outgrowing their homes or deciding to downsize and this getting on with life. What, what fundamentally stops when something like that happens in an area? What stops is the demand. So it's the, those areas were all sort of upgraded type markets, owner-occupier markets, and people who would normally upgrade to those sorts of suburbs, as they would in Sydney to get a view, or Melbourne to live near the bay, or uh, you know nearer to the city, that didn't happen in Brisbane. They mm. simply didn't want to go there because of the risk of another flood occurring. And uh, we've got friends in Brisbane who, um, like you say, we went there a little while after, and it looked like the house was fine, but then they showed us down into the basement, and it was a complete another shambles. You know, they, and it took them a long time. Pixie had a few motorbikes down there. They were ruined. You know, there was just a lot of damage and mm. the locals know about that. That's why they, they had a definite um, hesitance about moving into those areas and it's still there a little bit. And that is interesting, isn't it, because they're the aspirational areas, right? So, of course, I always think of a market, say in Sydney, for instance, you've got within the 10K radius of the CBD and, and there's a ripple effect that happens when the market's moving and there's like the reverse ripple effect that happens when the market slows down because everyone who is looking out of that area because of affordability suddenly stops and says, hey, I can now afford to buy where I really want to buy. And so the demand goes back into those inner areas. So I guess in this situation, you've got the area in which the demand would normally always hold up, right? suddenly not being in demand at all. And then where are the buyers then that wanted to upgrade? Did they find an alternative or do they stay put? They just stay put. Mm. And when we look at the supply and demand ratios, you can see it very clearly that the rate of sales in those areas is nowhere near what it used to be and people are just simply not moving. So, you know, when they want to move and move back into those areas, then Brisbane will start to boom and the stopper will be removed mm. and, and, you know, it'll be great. So you reckon it comes down to memories, how long our memory is before that yeah. happens? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've studied, um, it may sound a bit ghoulish, but I, I studied all sorts <laughs> of natural disasters. Right. <laughs> uh, like cyclones, floods, um, droughts, bushfires. And it, yes, the, the ones that cause loss of life and, and, you know, total loss of property, especially bushfires mm. and unexpected floods, it does take about five to ten years for people to get over those things, and so that's mm. a yeah, long time to wait. If you're an investor, that is, that's for sure. Indeed. Or if you want to get on with your life. Because, you know, we talk about this big stuff. It's like infrastructure, for instance. Oh, you know, there's a big hospital being built or a big highway or a train line or whatever. But it's how people react and respond to those big things happening. I was at a breakfast yesterday and there was a presentation from um, CoreLogic, and it was really fascinating, actually. But it's talking about policy. So now what's happening is in the macro world, we've got government policy is impacting on the property market, not even interest rates. This is policy. And once again, it's how people react to that, respond to that. And that's sort of at the heart of a lot of your research, isn't it? It is. These macroeconomic drivers where governments can control what happens, that can work two ways. You know, at times when there's no growth in the market and governments see that they've got to do something, they'll either, you know, abolish stamp duty for first-time buyers or they'll give uh, deposit grants, you know, this sort of thing. Uh, well, look so, what they did post-GFC. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that sort of uh, impetus can really lift a market quickly. But on the other hand, it can also dampen, in this case, investors and the tightening of lending conditions to even owner-occupiers, you mm. know, finding it harder to get loans. 
all of that has a dampening effect on the market. Mm. And the the danger is that the government, when they realise what they've done, will overcompensate and then the whole thing will start off once again. Yes. And, and look, I reflect back on what you said about basically that virtually all booms happen because of investors. But then when you're looking at a, an area such as in a 10K of, say, Sydney or Melbourne, where you've got a lot of owner-occupiers and the demand from owner-occupiers and the emotional push from owner-occupiers is often what underpins capital growth. But that's more sustainable, isn't it, really? That, that doesn't lead to booms in itself. Mm. Uh, when we look at the even the long-term growth of Sydney, it's about the last 10 years it's doubled in price. That's about what it should do anyway. Mm. So it's not really been a boom. It's just been, you know, the growth that would occur no- normally. Uh, what although, invests- although I've seen people in five years double. You know, quite a lot of properties are doubled in five or six years. Yeah. So I guess that's what you call a boom in Sydney terms and doubling in 10 is normal. Yeah, well, <laughs> the thing is most of the, the doubling occurred in the last five years of the 10 years. So Oh, sorry. Yes, yeah, I see. Yep. Yeah, before mm. that there was no, hardly any growth at all. Mm. So when you look at the 10 in five years, yes, it's a boom. But if you look at 10 years, no, it isn't. Mm. If you look at 20 years, no, it's, it's not. Um, mm. The average rate of growth of Australian housing is about 8% per annum. That is an interesting thing. Mm. That is since 1901, right? Yep. Yeah. 8% per annum of Australian property. Because the thing is I always cringe when I hear stats about the Australian property market because I wonder is there such a thing? In fact, I don't wonder about it. I know there's no such thing. So you have studied the Australian property market and found that, but have you broken it down into cities, regions? Yes. Yep. Yeah, I did. Because I wanted to see if this was uniform or not, mm. uh, and it is for capital cities. Mm. So the capital city growth rate, that's that's the 8%, wow. uh, and that's what it's based on. That's all, f- f- when I say five, and I'm, <laughs> it's a bit dangerous only saying there's five capital cities in Australia. Well, it, Are you including Hobart, Canberra, yeah. Darwin, everyone in that? All of them, because yeah. it, it's a rate of growth, so it's a percentage growth yes. rate. Uh, so you would expect the smaller ones to actually increase more percentage-wise to keep up with the bigger ones in, in real dollar terms. But when we looked at regional versus city, then we discovered this huge variance. Back in 1901, a house in, say, a country area was actually dearer than a house in the city. Oh, wow. And that's changed dramatically. So mm. the median price of a country house is about 60% that of a city house. So that's, I mean, they've gone up too, but the city ones have gone up a lot more. Wow, and that mm. would have to be socially driven, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the main driver is it's not so much people from the country leaving, it's more that all of our our recent population growth has been from migrants and they all prefer to live in capital cities. They don't want to live in in regional or rural areas. So um, they just keep on driving this demand for housing in our capital cities, especially Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. There's been a lot of debate recently about, you know, our migrant intake and also the forecast population growth for particularly Sydney and Melbourne, and a lot of debate about, you know, a lot of well-meaning people saying, well, why don't you just force them when they come to the country to go to Perth or go to regional areas? But why do you think we're not forcing them to go to Perth or regional areas? Well, the main reason is we can't. There are different laws and regulations in place and the federal government controls migration. People decide which state they want to live in. And although the government's tried in the past to sort of regulate professions like doctors and said you've got to work in the mm. country for a period of time, as soon as that time is up, back to the back city. To city. It's all yeah. aspirational, isn't it? it I is. guess it's what. Yeah. And, and, and also, you know, I, I don't want to generalise too much because I'm definitely not an expert in this area. You know, if you've got a, people coming from, say, India or China, they're densely populated countries and they're used to living in densely populated areas. And so you put them out in regional Australia, I'm sure they'd be pretty, pretty bit of a culture shock, wouldn't it? They, they'd hate it. Um, <laughs> yes. They wouldn't uh, stay very long. But that has also led to another phenomenon which is quite interesting and that is the growth of units in, mm. and the demand for units in our capital cities because, as you say, these people come from, you know, densely populated cities in, in India and China and they are used to living in high-density accommodation and so that's what they prefer. They see a house as being something quite, you know, unwieldy and, and unworkable, mm. and so they prefer to live in units. Yeah. What do you see in terms of, okay, so you've got migrants that prefer to live in units, and obviously that, um, that you know, feeds into the whole overdevelopment or 
or development, however you want to look at that. What about local demand? So, you know, second and third and fourth generation Australian demand for units. Do you see that changing? Not a lot. I think with younger people, um, while you're renting, units definitely the way to go because you can live where you like. You know, you can live near the city, um, near recreation, entertainment areas. So there's a lot of demand for for rentals from, you know, young, new households. That tends to diminish when they buy their first property. They'll prefer to get a house, usually because they want to start a family. Mm. And that means they've got to go to the outer suburban areas, you know, sort of miles away from the city mm. because it's all they can afford. And even now in Sydney, they can't even afford that. So they, I think they probably will be able to very soon. I hope so, <laughs> yeah. But um, that's – and then, of course, once they've got this property out, say, you know, in the outer suburban areas, the drive is then, as you say, to upgrade. So mm. after four or five years, they want to upgrade and get – Closer into the more established areas that have got better services and facilities. And so this movement comes back into the centre of the city, but not in units, in, in houses. Wow, interesting. Because I've anecdotally, I've been coming across people who are saying that they prefer to live in a three bedroom unit closer into the city rather than that trade off of having to spend so much more time commuting and be, and, and also distance themselves from their established networks and their families as well. So, what I hear anecdotally versus what the masses are doing are two very, very different things. So I've heard you talk about the three P's in property before. Now, I have a three P's too, but they're a very different thing. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? When I first started analysing the property market and how the market behaved, I came up with this idea of the three P's that, that drove the market. And the first one is population. So you won't get any sort of um, growth in the market unless you've got population growth. In other words, you've got to have an increase in demand. The second one was uh, purchasing power. So if people can't afford to or don't want to buy a, a property, then they're going to rent. So the increased demand from population either goes into rent or into owner-occupied demand. And then the third P is for places, which means that if you've got shortage that say most people want to rent and there's a shortage of rental properties, then rents are going to go up. But if there's a surplus of rental properties, rents won't go up. And if people want to buy a property to live in and there's a shortage of properties available for sale, then prices go up. So it's that differentiation between rental and purchase. And a lot of um, so-called analysts get this wrong. They don't realise there's actually two markets working at the same time, the rental market and the purchase market. Mm. One's investor-driven and the other one is owner-occupied-driven. Yeah, interesting. It's a shame that, you know, you had to try to force into three Ps because that last P, places, is really supply. That's what you're talking about, right? It is. <laughs> you can't get supply starting with P. Yeah, PPS didn't work. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, and that is interesting too because just hearkening back to what you were saying before about the artificial high yield in some areas that is really the only reason the yield is high is because prices are falling, not because there's high demand from tenants. So you've got, a, you've got a pretty catastrophic situation when you've got that type of yield because what you've got is really not that great demand from tenants necessarily or it's being masked by the falling mm, property prices. That's right. And in fact, I um, recently I, I was putting together a presentation and I looked on realestate.com.au and they've got, you know, couple of little pages where they go, oh, the top 10 uh, suburbs in the country for yield. Now, all this is just purely just obviously algorithm driven. Um, I don't think human beings looked at these because if they did, they would have to filter. <laughs> and so in the top 10, the first seven, there was not enough data for it to be reliable, you know. So it was just like oh, it might have had five properties or something in, in the data mix. So it's like, well, you've got to get rid of that. The number seven was South Elizabeth in Adelaide. Right. And we always we all know that the Holden factory closed in Elizabeth and the yield was uh, I think they were saying yields were eight percent and, and you could see the capital growth, uh, the median growth chart was pretty horrible, definitely trending downwards. And I think to myself, how many buyers are out there going, Oh, well, I'm gonna realestate.com.au, you know, it's a really reliable, trusted website. Oh, that's where I'm, I'm going to chase some yield. I want to get cash flow. I'm going to go buy something in South Elizabeth. It's pretty easy to buy something down there, I would imagine. <laughs> Too easy. Yes. <laughs> but, of course, you can't equate yield with cash flow, and I think that's mm. that's the real 
problem here. Everyone talks about rental yield, and I ah, wrote an article for yeah. um, your investment property about good yield and bad yield, and mm. I pointed out the fact that you know good yield is driven by rent demand, bad yield is driven by prices falling. Mm. I'm going to get the link for that if I can, so I remember to actually add it to the show right. notes. So the, the good yield and bad yield, I think that's a really important distinction. It's not there. It'll be on my blog site anyway. And that came about because one of my presentations uh, was just uh, before the budget before last, and I talked about good debt and bad debt. And then we noticed there were a few people in the back of the room taking notes furiously. And then two weeks later, Scott Morrison's budget talked about good debt and bad debt, but he was using different. it <laughs> in terms of you know good debt being in infrastructure borrowing. Um, whereas I was using it for buying property, you know, but it was rather funny that they used the same term. So yeah. I thought I'll come up with good yield and bad yield and see what happens. So anyway, that's that's there. I think that's excellent, actually, because people do get confused by that. Mm. And and even though I know it, even just you articulating it, it's like, absolutely. You know, I don't think I've explained it that way either, and I think that's a really good, good distinction mm. to make. Can I give you two examples? Please do. Um, the easiest way of working out where the yield is good is to look at an area and see what have prices, you know, remained stable over the last year or so. They haven't dropped. Then look at the number of rental vacancies and see just how many properties are vacant, waiting tenants. And if it's very low, then you've got an area that could, you know, if the yield is high, it's genuine yield. But there'll always be a reason for that. Uh, there are two examples that come to mind is one in, in Western New South Wales. Cobar has got one of the highest rental yields in New South Wales. Um, and the mining company there is just advertised for 200 new miners to come in and work because they're expanding the mine. Therefore, it's genuine mm. rent demand and that's going to lead to rents going up and the yield rising more. Another example in Victoria is a, a little tiny country town called Sananad. We went and had a look at that. It's got the highest rental yield in Victoria. And I thought, wow, well, you know, what's what's causing that? <laughs> um, and surprisingly, prices haven't fallen, but they've got a huge teaching hospital there. And a lot of the people that um, that train at the hospital have to rent in town. And so that causes the high yield, the high rent demand. So it's genuine yield. And I would imagine that'd be more long-term than Cobar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the difference is yeah. you can buy a property in, and again, you've got to buy the right property, mm. uh, but if you do in Sananad, then you'll be getting over 10% rental yield and it's going to last as long as the hospital keeps being mm. a teaching hospital. Once again, though, you are at the mercy of that hospital. And that's also the danger with buying in areas with only a single or a dominant um, employer, yeah. you know, like, like tourism areas or mining areas or where there's one mm. hospital. Yeah, they're such good tips. And I think anyone who's listening to this who, who wants to do their own research, it, it is about digging below and asking more and more questions. And obviously you can get to the point of complete overwhelm, but these are really really practical frameworks. You know, I love that. That's, you know, if, price, if prices are stable, it's not being created by falling prices because yield is a percentage of property prices or property value. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And buying the right type property. You know, I often talk about, the location is what does the heavy lifting. You know, it's like Pareto's rule, the 80-20 rule. I think probably 80% of a property's growth potential is in the location. And then the 20%, the real cream, that that what tips something from being an, uh, just an ordinary performer to an overperformer in any particular area is the actual asset itself, you know, and, and the type of property, as you say. Right, back to my questions. I haven't even asked Chris's question yet. <laughs> so you're a property educator as well. That's right, yep. What do you think that people really want to hear when they sign up for property education? They want to hear how they can avoid making mistakes and get the best possible results from their property investment decisions. And there's a lot, unfortunately, because it's an unregulated industry, mm. there's a lot of people out there who will claim to provide education and what they're really doing is, you know, pushing properties onto unsuspecting investors or they really don't know how the market works and so they give them really bad advice. Mm. You know, I've had people coming to me who have bought properties in, in mining areas just at the end of the boom because their mentors told them to do that. Uh, and, and that's really bad advice. That can ruin you know, your investment mm. dream. Do you find that people come to you in, in your sessions and that they resist good advice? A lot of them 
they find it hard to to follow that the market behaves according to rules of supply and demand mm. and that these are set by people and not properties. You mm. know? So ultimately, when I say that even the supply is set by people because they're developers and so on, so they control the market and demand is is people wanting to buy or rent. So but it's not that hard to quantify those numbers and work out which of the areas that have got the most potential. But what you want to avoid is the you know, the glib promises made by sellers' agents and, mm. and buying off the planned properties on, on the basis of a two-year rental guarantee, that sort of thing, because you really don't know what you're getting into. I'm horrified, actually, by a lot of the stories that I hear from people. In fact, um, we had a question written into the website for this show. might even answer it now. And I can't remember word for word, but it went along these lines. So this, this fellow has emailed us. He said that his financial planner has contacted him after five years of silence, interestingly enough, out of the blue. It's about time that he should be considering uh, investing in property. And so he's then introduced this guy to a, a spruker, effectively. So it was meant to be an educator, you know, someone to educate him on property. And it turns out to be a salesperson and, and it's in the Gold Coast, an apartment in the Gold Coast. And, you know, he's he's been calling, I guess, for the, the pressure. And then he's got to a point where the contracts are about to be sent to his lawyer and he suddenly thought, oh, maybe I should get some advice. Maybe I should just, you know, check. And my advice is check who you're getting the advice from, who you're taking the advice from and how are they getting paid? And if they're not getting paid by you, then there's a bloody good chance that they're acting out of their own self-interest, not your interest. And a financial planner pushing, oh, you know, property like that is just mortifying. But anyway, mm. so this sort of thing happens, doesn't it? It, it does happen all too often. Mm. And uh, I always say there's nothing wrong with earning a living, whether it be from property education or even from selling property, as long as you're upfront and tell people, you know, what the nature of your game is. Mm. And at all my events, I always say to people, if you go to an event and you find out that they're selling or trying to sell you property uh, and they're not upfront about that, then just walk out. It's in their interests, not in yours, that the that you're there. I think I'd add even more to that, that even if they're upfront that they're selling it, but if they're calling it education, run. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> they've probably gone and learned all about NLP and all these, all these ways to influence you and you're just a sitting duck. And, you know, the, the amount of people that I meet that have just fallen for these, they just sound so promising. You know, the mining town thing, for argument's sake, I mean, let's face it, you know, I've this ridiculous capital growth and, and crazy yields and I only spent $300,000 on a property and, you know, now it's worth a million and all of a sudden actually now it's worth $120,000. Um, you know, some really, really terrible, terrible stories that have happened to people that have, have jumped on this bandwagon and stars in their eyes and thought, man, I am going to be able to retire by the age of 30. You know, it's just terrible. You've been around the traps for a while. I mean, you've got, you got grey hair than mine, although I dye mine. <laughs> um, I'm sure you can remember back to the 80s when we had a recession and interest rates peaked close to 20%. I wasn't actually quite in the market then, but, um, but I had friends that were. Do you think Australian property investors have forgotten what bad things can happen? Well, that, that's a really interesting question, Veronica. Um, I lived through that period and uh, I had a number of loans and it was really, really hard to maintain the repayments. But I always think that people, especially when it comes to your own home, will do whatever they had mm. have to do. Um, I went out and got a second job and, you know, my wife got a job and we just did what we had to do. Uh, I don't think those times will recur. They were quite unique. They're driven by a number of things, you know, the what they called stagflation and and then the petrodollar crisis, things that most people thankfully don't have to worry about now. Um, but, yeah, you've always got to be aware of the fact that interest rates can go up um, and the banks are now factoring in, a, I think it's about 2 to 3% above the the um, in operating rate mm. because they're aware of the fact that this, this is likely to happen. They're more likely to go up than down. So yeah. I think, you know, you've <laughs> – and it's not – as an investor, your main worry is not so much about the interest rates, it's about rent demand. And mm. the reason I say that is because, uh, and it sounds awfully um, terrible, but what it means is if interest rates go up, fewer people can afford to buy 
more people will have to rent and therefore rent demand goes up. And so rents go up. That compensates investors for the higher interest rate. doesn't help owner-occupiers at all. No. Yeah. Interesting. So, yes, I think we do have some interesting times ahead. And I, and going back to a comment that you made earlier about the the banks tightening up and the APRA restrictions kicked in in 2000, in 2016, wasn't it now? That's I think. Right, yeah. yeah. It took a while for them to take effect. Uh, and now it's actually, you know, the, the owner-occupier market is very much tightened and, and that multiplier of your income has come down. So money is much harder to come by. Recently, and I've been talking to, you know, a number of different mortgage brokers and I, and I seem to get two, two different responses to this and maybe we're going off, off piste a little bit here, but um, two different types of responses to this when I talk to mortgage brokers about this tightening of credit. And there's one response which is basically, and I think a responsible response, which is, well, we have to have a conversation with our clients about where they're carrying debt. Is it good debt? or bad debt, you know, the credit card debt, get that, you know, we need to talk to them about their budgeting and their cash flows and, and they need to basically get themselves, really commit a good six months to getting themselves into better financial health. Um, and then we have to get all the documentation to, to, to satisfy the banks and we have this long process to get there. And the other type of broker comes back and says, oh, I can find money for my clients. I can still get, get them financed. And my alarm bells go off when I hear that second one. I mean, they're very proud of themselves because they can jump through hoops and I don't know where they're getting the finance, but it just seems a bit risky to me. Well, it, it's risky because you're going into unregulated areas. That's why they can get the finance. Mm. Only the big four banks are controlled by APRA regulations mm. and the smaller lenders aren't. And, of course, non-bank lenders are just a, you know an open playing field. There's no control on them apart from ASIC regulations. So usually when a mortgage broker says that, they'll mean they're going to go to a non-bank lender. Right. There's not many of them. There's a few. We won't name them, but mm. uh, some of them are quite reputable. But there are others that will give you short-term vendor finance, and that's the danger. Where mm. they, They're going to hope that all this blows over, so they'll get you a loan at a much higher rate, but it expires in two or three years, and then you've got to try and find you know, real bank lender who will touch the loan. So that that's, I think, a very dangerous approach. Mm, yeah. yeah, I'm risk averse, so that's probably mm. why my antenna went off there. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. So do you have a property dumbo for us? I do, um, and it's uh, something that happened to some very close friends of mine. It was quite a while ago, but the uh, the lessons to be learnt from that are still very valid today. And this particular, uh, my best friends actually, and uh, they got married, and they went on a honeymoon up to the Gold Coast. And while they were there, they heard about this amazing new property development that was occurring just north of the Gold Coast. And uh, Spruker said, you know, this is area's going to double in value in a few years' time. They're building schools and hospitals and roads and everything. And they were sucked in and they bought a block of land. Even though they're your best friend. Well, this was a long time ago right. before I was <laughs> a property market educator. Yeah. If, if it happened now, I'd tell them to, you know, do their research. But so this particular development was um, on a place called Russell Island, which is, it's, um, Part of Norton Bay, it's an island in Norton Bay, Morton Bay, and it's about 40 k's south of Brisbane, about half an hour by ferry. I've been there. It's a, quite a beautiful place. The developers bought virtually the whole island and it was zoned rural, so they approached the government and said, can you rezone the, the island residential? And the government said, no, we can't. There's nothing there. There's no roads, no, you know, no power, no water, no sewerage. But the developers offered some money to um, ease the process and the government, being rather uh, corrupt, <laughs> said, okay, we'll rezone the whole island residential. However, the developers had a worse problem, which was they needed a bridge to be built to the mainland because that would make it about half an hour's drive from Brisbane. Can you build a bridge? And the government said, no, there's no one there. We're not going to build a bridge. Well, can you promise to build a bridge sometime in the future? <laughs> okay, more money was changed hands. Mm. And so 
The government made vague promises that a bridge would be built to Russell Island sometime in the future. But the developers had an even worse problem, and that was that a lot of the island went underwater at high tide. <laughs> and this is a true story. It oh, really, no. really happened. Wow. So how do you solve a problem like that, Veronica? You know, Canals. What, well, yeah, or build a, you know, a, a dam around it, seawall. <laughs> what they did was something even more innovative. They did all the aerial photography at low tide. And by doing the aerial photography and the surveys at low tide, they ended up with 20,000 blocks oh, that no. they sold to unsuspecting people from Sydney and Melbourne, like my friends. Wow. So they actually bought an underwater block of land. <clears throat> well, only partially underwater oh, twice Jesus. a day. So, yeah, 20,000 <laughs> 20, blocks um, all sold and all the purchasers thought, you know, these, these will, right, will double in price in a few years. And um, what happened was that 14,000 of those 20,000 blocks would never, ever be built on because they did go underwater. And the my friends lost everything. Now, this set them back wow. many, many years. You mm. know, we bought our house, we sold it, we bought another one, and they were still struggling, paying off this enormous debt. And it really, really hurt them financially. Now, what happened in the end, um, when I tell this story in places like Adelaide, people say, oh, that happened, it's not possible, you know. <laughs> but it did happen, and mm. the only person who went to jail was the surveyor who did the aerial photography. Oh, my God. He went to jail for several years, but people lost everything. And um, what's well, a beautiful place now to go to, but you still got to take the ferry. There's no, no, still no bridge. Uh, it probably never will be. Has there anyone ever built there? Yeah, yeah, there's houses right. there, there's holiday homes. 6,000 could be built on. Yeah. It was the 14,000 that couldn't. That, 14,000, uh, and that's a mm. 70%. That's a lot. That was right. Yeah. yeah. Jesus. So the, <laughs> the lessons for today are, I guess, the the first thing is don't believe what the speakers tell you. you mm. know, always do your research. If they say there's going to be schools or, um, you know, shopping centres or hospitals built, is this really going to happen or not? Um and the second thing is do your own on-the-ground research, you know, have a look and see because if they'd had a look, they would have realised that mm. these blocks could never be built on and that uh, they would lose all their money. So check, oh. you know, is the area sewered? Is it um, mm. on town water? Is it subject to bushfires or in particular flooding? But I think the most important lesson of all is don't buy with your heart instead of your head mm. and especially not when you're on a honeymoon because... You're going to make some very, very bad decisions. Are they still married? They are, yeah. Oh, well, that's mm. at least one good thing because the reality is that this sort of financial pressure and, and, and living with regret really can can be very toxic in a relationship as well. So um, the, the impact of, of terrible decisions is, is far-reaching and, oh, yeah. what a shocking story. And, you know, and you mentioned earlier about it is an unregulated market and, yes, okay, Property spruikers tend not to be real estate agents. They tend to be marketers. Now, they are governed by the um, ACCC and, you know, Trade Practices Act and all that sort of thing. Um, and so they're not meant to lie, but obviously there's a lot of money at stake and so some of them do and not all of them do either, but some do. And likewise with, pro with real estate agents, you know, there's the Property Stock and Agents Property Stock and Station Agents Act in New South Wales, for instance, but there are other pieces of legislation that do apply to sales agents and buyers agents for that matter. Um, and unfortunately, it's that the sorts of things that are said, say, by sales agents shock me. You know, um, unlimited potential. I see that a lot in advertising. You know, it's meaningless, mm. but it's also completely and utterly untrue. Nothing has unlimited potential. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, you know, good investment. You know, a sales agent is not qualified to, to state whether a property is a good investment or not, but they often say it. And, um, and buyers need to be aware of that, that just mm. because the so-called expert is saying it doesn't actually mean they're qualified or experienced enough to be able to actually give that advice and make that call. And a lot of them also use population growth uh, predictions. You know, this area is going to double mm. in population in a certain period of time. And, and they think, well, how on earth do they know that? No one knows that. Mm. You know? So it, you'd be very wary of those things. And another thing I've noticed is with a lot of the spruikers where they use testimonials, 
And a lot of the uh, events are testimonial driven yeah. about people saying, you know, I've made all this money out of this, this particular development or whatever. Um, and trade practices has come down on, on these sorts of testimonials and said, you've got to actually prove what the person says is true. So now when you look at all these testimonials, they have little sort of disclaimers underneath saying, this is what the people told us. We don't necessarily know if it's true or not, you know, <laughs> so read the small print. Yeah, and I think this is our Elephant Rider Boot Camp this week, read the, sm read the small print. Mm. Um, and that is interesting too, those testimonials. I often read them and I think to myself, you know, somebody saying, oh, my property immediately went up. You know, I bought a brand new house and land package in Timbuktu, you know, somewhere right way out there and it got valued straight after I settled and I made, you know, $100,000 and then I was able to borrow against that equity and buy another one, yippee. And it's like you didn't make it unless you sold it. Mm. And, you know, you might have got five valuers through there and at five different prices as well. So it's it, it's a scary thing and I think, that, yeah, read the read the small print. If it smells, was it, is it walks like a duck, a dizzle duck? That's right. <laughs> And, and value is something that a property has when it's sold, not when it's bought. Mm. So if you buy an off-the-plan property and they say it's valued at this or valued at that, you don't really know what it's worth until you try to sell it. Then mm. you'll find out what it's worth. And in fact, and I know we're sort of segueing again here, but uh, with the government talk or the, the, sorry, the Labor Party talking about um, changing negative gearing, and in fact, the Liberal Party has changed negative gearing, made some uh, changes to negative gearing, which basically makes a two-tiered market. You've got the brand new stock, which is overpriced anyway, and then you've got no market for that second sale of that property because all the people that want the depreciation aren't going to be able to get it because it's no longer brand new. And the people buying the brand new are thinking, great, I get depreciation. What they really should be thinking of is, where's my growth going to come from if there's no market for this property? You know, the better opportunity is really buying the first resale at the much cheaper price. Forget the depreciation. You've actually got chances of getting some capital growth out of it, That's maybe. That's exactly right, yeah. Mm. Mm. Anyway, so there's a boot camp for this week, which is basically read the small print, people. Yes. Okay, look, John, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. I so, you know, I'm very, very grateful for you spending the time to come in and talk to me today. I'm missing Chris, but um, we'll make up for that. <laughs> and I didn't actually get to ask you his question. His question was, is, his question he asks everyone is, and why does this matter? Well, that depends on the question, doesn't it? <laughs> Everything that we were talking about today. Oh. Why does it matter? <clears throat> you don't have to answer it. <clears throat> um, I don't think I will. <laughs> okay. So, I, look, I really appreciate your time today, John. This has been illuminating. I've very much um, learnt a lot and I know our listeners will. How can our listeners find out more about you? Well, they can um, obviously read my books, which are available online. Um, and we'll put the links in the show notes, by the yeah, way. Yeah, you can. There's still, I think, um, the second one you can still buy uh, as an electronic version and probably hard copy as well. The first one is now out of print. Um, read my articles in your investment property and also go to our blog site, which I think there'll be a, a link to. Is, is Absolutely. That Yep. So there'll be a link to my blog site, lots of interesting information about what we've been talking about and much more. And um, always remember to check the bona fides of anyone you talk to and who talks to you about property because it's an unregulated market and there's a lot of rogues out there. Yeah, sage advice and thank you for that. So, John, yes, we will put those links all in the show notes. And one thing I ask listeners, we want to know what you want to know. Now, I mentioned a question that's been sent through to us in this episode and John actually gave an answer for that person. I hope they haven't gone off and bought that Gold Coast property, certainly not without a lot more research and reading of the fine print. So send your questions in, theelephantintheroom.com.au. That's where you'll find the show notes for this episode, but also you get the opportunity to send questions in for what you would like us to talk about and find out about. That was fantastic. Thank you so much. That's all right. It's been um, a pleasure. 
Please join us for our next episode when we interview an architect this time around, Tom Wills. Now, we have a great conversation with Tom about some of the crazy things that people do when they're buying property, the way wishful thinking kicks in, the way people often buy properties, they're dumps, and they think they're going to polish it into a diamond, and they have no concept of what is even possible. Very interesting episode. It's one you really must listen to if you are ever thinking that you might be a renovator. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Risk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.